All right, good morning. Welcome to uh, All Hallows Eve, the official uh, day before All Saints Day, uh, which in the rest of the world, other than the United States, is actually a major holiday. Uh, All Saints Day, because I was talking to my friends in Guata from Guatemala, it's like Thanksgiving in Guatemala. Everybody gets together for All Saints Day, because obviously they don't have Thanksgiving. They don't have the whole pilgrim thing. <laughs> So it's the big family holiday, I guess, yes. next to Christmas? Uh, everybody uh, gets together on All Saints Day. And so there'll be huge, all the families from all over gather around. They don't obviously don't do Halloween, uh, but they do All Saints Day. And so even though they're all Church of Christ and Christian churches and everything else, they're still they still celebrate all the Catholic holidays. Yeah. Which is interesting. Because you ask him, what are you? I'm Church of Christ. Why are you taking All Saints Day off? Yes. <laughs> Christmas? Yes. It's Easter? Cultural. Yes. So, all right, let's talk about Matthew, uh, the second gospel. Well, actually, it may have been the first gospel. Depends. We'll talk about that in two seconds. Uh, just a little review of kind of where we're at. My computer won't work. Jeff, what? Did you turn the yes, it's on. I checked my Bible first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeff, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard it. it was my first gospel. We're going to talk about why it's the, why it's the first one in your Bible. It's, it's not because it was written first. All right. Kind of a review of where we're at. Remember, we started at the very beginning of the church and everything written. Uh, everything starts down here in Judea. And so the church is now just spreading you know, a little bit up into Syria, into Antioch of Syria. And then, you know, Paul makes his first and second missionary journey. So he moves up into this area here. Uh, and so now we're in the late 50s. So we're talking uh, 25 to 30 years after the start of the church. Uh, church is very established now in what is the old Greek area. Uh, we know there are Christians in Rome, because next week we're going to talk Romans, which is Paul's letter to those Christians saying, hey, I'm coming, and here's who I am. Uh, you also know uh, uh, the, Parth the Parthenians live here. This is not part of the Roman Empire, but it has a lot to do with the book of Matthew. Uh, And just to kind of, we're right about here. Uh, the, gospel, the Gospel of Luke is going to be the next Gospel written. Felix is in charge of Judea. Nero is now the emperor. And what, what we talked about last week with the <coughs> Corinthians is that emperor worship, uh, the first guy to make emperor worship for a living emperor is Caligula. Nobody liked Caligula. He ends up getting uh, a quick... Uh, retirement, <laughs> courtesy of his guards. Everyone loves Claudius. Claudius rules a really long time. Claudius is also treated as a god. Claudius dies, Nero takes over. So we're in the middle of Nero. Uh, and so that's kind of what's going on in the greater culture around that where Matthew's writing. This is where the Roman Empire is at its peak of its power, uh, it's very relatively peaceful. 
in that there's not a lot of major wars going on, a lot of trade going back and forth. It's pretty easy to travel. Uh, so a lot of these books are being moved around. And Christianity goes with the, with the trade and the travel. So Christianity is spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire at this point. And just to remind you, we're right here. Uh, we're not quite to Paul's third journey yet. First uh, and 2 Corinthians have already written. Romans is going to be next week. So we're right in this time period of the timeline. All right, let's talk about Matthew. Who wrote it? When was it written? Where was it written? Why was it written? Uh, who wrote Matthew? Uh, to me, like everything else, there's always main theories. There's always, it's written by the apostle or it's written by his disciple. It depends on uh, how you view uh, the Holy Spirit working. Because if it's written by Matthew, he predicts the fall of Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit would have told him. If it's written by his disciples, they are, it was written afterwards when it had already fallen. Uh, almost everyone agrees, and we're going to get to in two seconds, that Matthew's probably the writer in the late 50s, early 60s. And actually, he may have written before that. Uh, here's some more evidence. Maybe. There we go. So here, a lot of these are early church fathers. Uh, Pius was born in 60, lived to 130. So we're talking right after this current time period. And, and he writes... Matthew composed the oracles in the Hebrew language and each interpreted them as he could. That's a pretty strong evidence that Matthew wrote this. It also tells you that it was not written in Greek. And remember, when, he, when, the, when these guys are, who are all Greek, uh, except for Arrhenius, obviously, has France, he's Gallic, the, when they say Hebrew language, they don't mean Hebrew. What they mean, because the Hebrews at that time spoke Aramaic. And so... We think Matthew, at some point, wrote a book in Aramaic that he, he distributed out. Uh, same thing, Arrhenius talks about Matthew published the gospel in the Hebrews in their own tongue. Again, Aramaic. Uh, Mark was the interpreter of Peter. Luke was the follower of Paul. And, Jesus, and John was the disciple of the Lord. So he kind of lays the four gospels out for you and, and who they are kind of, who was the main influence in that gospel? And then uh, going even later, uh, this guy's very interesting. Remember I, I pointed to the back of the part, where the Parthians were? That's not part of the Roman Empire. In 180, the Romans conquered the Parthians. And so the church is very strong. So the first thing the church does, it says, we're going to send missionaries to the Parthians to tell them about Jesus. Pontius is one of those guys that goes. He gets there and finds a very strong church. This is around current day Baghdad. So down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Finds a very strong church. And so they ask them, how do you know about the church? Because the Romans and the Parthians have been enemies for about 150 years. Uh, and they said, oh, Bartholomew, who you remember is one of the 12 apostles, 
brought the gospel of Matthew in Aramaic because in Baghdad they definitely speak Aramaic. They don't speak Hebrew, they don't speak Latin, they don't speak Greek. And they preached and left the gospel of us and that's how we know about the, the, the church. It, that means that Matthew wrote something probably, because right around 40 to 45, the border really seals. It, you don't get a lot of interchange for about 100 years. So sometime before that, Matthew wrote something in Aramaic that Bartholomew, one of the apostles, took to the east. And so we think that there was an early version of Matthew that he wrote that's probably not like the Matthew we have. That it's, it's, uh, there are some other writings around the time that talk about the or the Matthew kind of wrote the oracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Because uh, we're, we're going to talk about it in a minute. The current Matthew is, is clearly modeled on Mark. So Matthew probably wrote something early to, wrote, that we don't have a copy of at all. Went to the east, and then he writes the gospel, as we know it, the gospel of Matthew. Uh, and then Tertullian also says the same thing that Matthew wrote it. So there's a lot of very early evidence that Matthew's actually the. Were the oracles of Jesus been the Q? That's that is a uh, that is a theory that because there are when you guys get into textual criticism they they read <coughs> there seems to be a another piece of writing that a lot of the guys read. And so that's one of the theories is that Q, they, they, it's called Q, is that Q is the, is the oracles that Matthew wrote. Uh, here's a couple more, even going even later. And so here's kind of a, a, a timeline I, which I think kind of reflects what happened at the time. Sometime in the 40s, Matthew writes something in Hebrew slash Aramaic. Uh, in the late 50s, Mark writes the Gospel of Mark. Now, understand the Gospel of Mark is really the Gospel of John Mark according to Peter. Peter's really the one that John Mark gets this from. John Mark was a very young man when Jesus was around. Uh, he's actually in the book of Mark, running naked through the streets. Uh, but So John Mark probably gets this from, from Peter, writes down the gospel. Uh, Matthew then writes the gospel, what we know as a, the gospel of Matthew, in Greek sometime after Mark. And then a few years later, Luke is going to write Luke and Acts. And then all three of those are about the same time. And then somewhere in the 80s to as late as 90, John is going to write the gospel of John. And so those are the four Gospels. The reason Matthew is first, everyone recognizes the fact that Mark is the first Gospel written. A lot of time, part of it is size, part of it is theology, and the amount of teaching that's in a book. Uh, in the first century, scrolls were, were pretty much standardized in length. Mark is one scroll long. It's really easy to transport. It's cheap to buy. Uh, Matthew, Luke, and John are all two scrolls. So that if you're, you know, if you're traveling with one of those, you're, and you know, and if you think Luke and Luke and Acts 
were all meant to be read together. That's four scrolls. That's, you know, that's not carrying you know, your Bible like this. You're talking scrolls that are this big, probably this big around. You've got four of them for Luke and Acts. Mark is this. Uh, Matthew is two, but it's, there's a lot of teaching. So a lot of the early church fathers move Matthew to the front of the line because there's so much theology in it. Whereas Mark is very much, you know, I've listened to the, the sermons, Mark is very action-oriented. It's like Jesus went here and did this. He went here, he did this. He went there, he did this. You're going to see in a minute, Matthew is a totally different layout as far as the gospel. What, what is the evidence for the first writing in, Ara in Aramaic? That's that uh, from Pantus when they got to uh, the Parthians, that they already had a cop they already had copies of a book from Matthew. Oh. And so that there, there's is it possible the book of Matthew got over there yet? Yeah, but they don't have any when they get there in the late 180s, they don't have any other Christian books. They don't have Mark, they don't have John, they don't have Acts, they don't have Luke, they don't have any of the Pauline letters. They just have this book from Matthew. So the thought is that he probably wrote something down earlier that got over there before the border shut. Is this like a, almost like a first draft? Because that's what I wondered why all these were 30 or 40 years later. Like, were there, there must have been writings well, about yeah, Jesus. Yeah, cl certain. clearly I think there were writings going on that we don't have copies of. Because, yeah. you know, we know when we looked at Corinthians, right, there's four letters and we only got two of them. There's these letters back and forth. Uh, and there's probably other writings... Although, you know, if you think about it, church starts in 30. If you're in the 40s, most of the people around the start of the church are still alive. When you get into the 50s, you know, average lifespans are in the 40s in this time if you're not wealthy. The original Christians are starting to die off. So you see Mark, Matthew, and then Luke start writing all this stuff down. Because, you know, they get it from Matthew, obviously, we're going to talk about in a second, is an apostle. Peter and uh, Paul are the, the, the guys for Luke and Mark. And so they're getting elderly. So you see the guys writing stuff down and getting the story from them and writing it down. You know, is, is it directed by the Holy Spirit? Yes. I think at that point they said, you know, you need to write this down because Christ is not necessarily coming back. Even though some of the people thought Christ was coming back very soon, especially when you get around near... Uh, when you had Caligula, they really thought he was coming. Uh, and then Nero, when they start putting the Christians in the uh, Colosseum, they start thinking, oh, Christ is coming back. But then they start writing it down in case he's not coming back. And I think that's led by the Holy Spirit to say, write this down. Uh, so that, that's kind of the timeline of the first four Gospels. want me to sign in my one drive. And the other question is who read who? Which my computer is slowly not wanting to work. It's also clear when you read the, the first three synoptic gospels that they are from the same uh, viewpoint, and that a lot of them read, they read each other. 
if I can get this to cycle one. Uh, so, I mean, because, you know, when I was growing up, you always kind of think, well, the, the, the guys, you know, they wrote these in a vacuum. They weren't. You know, these guys were all living, uh, Matthew's probably living in Antioch, Assyria, which is where the, the biggest church is. So he's, he's not like living in a cave somewhere all by himself. He's around all these other Christians, and so he's reading everything else that's out there. So he's probably seeing some of Paul's letters because they're circulating, and Paul is based out of the church in Antioch. Well, maybe we're going to have another slide. Here we go. All right, so who read whom? So when you look at them, uh, if you assume Mark comes first, then Matthew, then Luke, uh, a lot of them have the same stories and the same information. Uh, so what's called the triple tradition, it's in all three books. Matthew's 45, 41. Mark, 76% of his is in the other, is in the other two books. Uh, now only 1%. Unique to Mark, 3%. Unique to Luke, 35%. Unique to Matthew, 20%. Because they're, they're telling the story from a little different point of view. So they, they emphasize stuff that the other books may not have. But by and large, they, they're telling a lot of the same stories. All right, when you get into Matthew, you got to know about who the Herods are. Because uh, if you read it this week, or you read it this week coming up, there are a lot of Herods in Matthew. Herod's a family name. So Herod the Great is the guy we all know as Herod. He's the guy that builds the temple. Uh, he is in charge of all... Judea, Galilee, across uh, Transjordan. Just his dad helped Julius Caesar conquer Egypt, and so his reward was to have all the Middle East as his kingdom. And so Herod is his son. Herod lives a really long time. At the, at the, the beginning of Jesus' birth, this is the Herod. Is Herod the Great? Uh, if you've been following the, the sermons in Mark. Uh, we have essentially three Herods that this guy never rules. These three sons manage to survive Herod, who tends to kill his own children. Uh, Herod Antipas is the Herod of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Archelaus is the reason that uh, Pontius Pilate is in control. He's a horrible ruler. He gets tossed out. Philip rules across the way. He just, he kind of goes with the flow, other than the fact that Herod Antipas takes his wife, which causes John the Baptist to get his head cut off. So these are, and as you can see, this, and here is the woman. So Philip marries his niece. Herod takes Philip's wife, who's their common niece, and marries her. This is pretty normal in rural families in those days. Uh, so this is uh, the Herodias who asked for John the Baptist's head. Her brother is Herod Agrippa, who is when you get to Acts, that's the Herod. Because he ends up taking over for Herod Antipas.
have a dumb question, which is, yes. how do the Herods relate to the government of the day? I mean, what, what do they? Oh, Herod, Herod is a king of what? Of what we call Israel. We call Israel and Syria now, but probably southern Syria, Lebanon, Israel. He is a king. He is not the king. There are, they have different titles. He is a king, but he answers to Caesar. He's a puppet king. He's a puppet king, yes. And so that, you'll see this back and forth between the Jewish leaders and them as you read the book. But, so he's in charge. He's in charge as long as he keeps the peace. Remember, what, what's the Romans? Pay your taxes, keep the peace. Either one of those two things fail to happen, he gets his head cut off. There, Herod grew up with uh, Julius Caesar. He would have been a contemporary of Julius and Julius's children. Because all these guys were, what you would do is you would take the children of the king and hold them as hostages in Rome. And but you would you would raise them and educate them with your kids so that then they would think of themselves as Roman and not MUDM, which is what these guys are. Uh, yes. So you remember when uh, Jacob and Esau were in in utero and uh, they were fighting, and the prophet comes and says, "You have two nations inside you, and the older will serve the younger." So you have Jacob and Esau. Esau becomes an Edomite, which is down around Sinai. Which is okay, these guys right here. Becomes an Edomite, and literally. Jacob, I mean, literally, Esau was not Jewish. Right. He did not, through, by giving up his birthright, he denied his Judaism. So he's not Jewish. The Romans knew that. They despised the Jews. So who did they put in charge of all Israel? An Edomite. So it's in your face constantly. Yes. We're in control. We can make your enemies rule over. I don't know if you remember when they were traveling and the Edomians attacked them from the rear. It, they're despised. There's a lot over the entire history of, of Israel as a nation, the Emudians and that constantly fight. And to throw, and just, you know, the Jews jump in on this too. When they're the Maccabeans, they're the Hesmodians, they control their own destiny. They decide it's a really good idea to go down into Mia, conquer it, and convert them all to Judaism, which means that you had to circumcise every man over the age of 13 in Emudia. Herod's father, Herod the Great's father, sorry, his grandfather, was the king at that time. So Herod the Great grew up hearing the stories of his grandfather forcibly circumcised by the Jews to become a Jew. So there's no love lost between the Emudians and the, and the Jews. So the Romans make an Emudian in charge of all Judea. They don't like the Jews. You get the, you're getting that picture. The Romans do not like the Jews. And so here's, uh, so Philip's area is up here. Uh, during the Gospels, Antipas controls these two areas. This area is Archelaus, who then gets thrown out, and so uh, Pontius Pilate becomes in control. So when you read the stories, Jesus, they're jumping around these areas. They're crossing borders. So who was Matthew? Matthew's Jewish. He's very literate. Because uh, in order to be a tax collector, you have to be able to do math. Obviously, you're doing collecting taxes. 
you have to speak Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, all three, because that's who you're, and probably some amount of Latin. So he's a smart, he's a smart guy. Uh, he's a tax collector. Every other Jew hated him because you're working for the Romans who we hate. So he was not a popular guy. So when Jesus comes and makes him an apostle, that's very, uh, or a disciple originally, then apostle, that's, a, that's an in-your-face to uh, the uh, Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and especially the uh, Zealots would not have liked him as a disciple. All right, What's, who's the audience? He's writing to the Jews throughout the world. Uh, this is the most Jewish book in the New Testament. It, it's, you, it's sometimes difficult for us to read because it's very, very Jewish. It has the most Old Testament references. He's constantly going back to the law, saying, the law did this, therefore this. Uh, and we know it's, his audience is Jewish because he rarely explains his references to the Old Testament. He just says them. If you look at Luke, whenever something like that happens, Luke explains to his audience what that means. Matthew never does. He just says, you know, it's the days of the temple. Because you have to know that like, that's Passover. Uh, and to the average Greek, they would have no idea what that is. And then the secondary audience is the Gentile under Christians to help them understand the Jewish Christians. Remember, early on, re relatively early book, Still a large amount of Jewish Christians around. The Gentiles are starting to explode, and you have to understand the Jews to understand kind of where Jesus came out of. Here's the theme. Jesus is the new Moses. To you and I, we're going, like, no, no, Jesus is the Messiah. That's Luke. That's Mark. That's John. To the Jews, at the time of Jesus, the teaching was from all the rabbis, who is the great, who saved the Jews the last time? Moses. Because they were in slavery to the Egyptians. Who comes along? Moses. Moses is the great Messiah. He takes them out and sets them up as their own country. So the teaching was that Moses was coming back. The new Moses had to come. The Messiah was going to be the new Moses. He was going to save Israel. So the book goes along with that. Jesus is the new Moses. He's going to go... He's going to start with that. He's going to move that to Messiah. But the book is structured in a very Jewish way to talk about Jesus as the Moses. All right, the structure of the book. Uh, we start with this genealogy. It's very Jewish. There are five major sections in the book. That is not an accident. How many books did Moses write? Five. five. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. So if Jesus is the new Moses, there are five sections in his book that parallel the writings, because Moses is the bringer of the law, as well as the guy who saved him. He also brought the law. Jesus is going to follow in. So the book has five major sections. Uh, and also remember, this is an Aramaic Hebrew book, not a Greek book. So this, the key to the book is not the end. You know, because we've all been taught, you know, introduction, one, two, three, conclusion. That's Greek. Aramaic Hebrews did not write that way. This book, and so the middle, the, they're more chiasmic, which means intro, intro, main point, supporting point, supporting point. 
So the main point's in the middle of the book. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Right through here is the main part of the book. And then at the end of the book is the passion narrative, the, the uh, crucifixion. But that is not necessarily the main point to the, a Jew who would read this book. All right, let's start a little bit with the genealogy. You, did you guys all skip this like I skipped it forever? <laughs> You're going like, I don't really care. To a Jew, it's, this is the most important, one of the most important parts of the book. Because the book is, Jews is, I am a son of Abraham. And then which tribe am I in? Because that's very important to a Jew. So we start with Abraham. If you look in Luke, when we get to Luke, he starts with Adam. Because Luke is not Jewish. So I am a child of Abraham. Jesus is a child of Abraham. Starts with Abraham. Uh, and then as you read through here, there are four interesting women who pop up. A, women should not be in your genealogy. Sorry, women. Women did not count in the first century. Only the men count. So your genealogy ran male to male to male to male. Matthew, who's the Jewish, a very Jewish Jew, puts four women in here. And all these women uh, are, interestingly enough, non-Jews. Not a single one is Jewish. Uh, or... If they're Jews, they're not the best. Uh, Tamar is the first one. These are not good girls. They get the scarlet A for the most part. Uh, Tamar seduces Judah to father her twins. So if you, and so every Jew knows that story. So that's in the uh, genealogy of Jesus. Uh, the other part to understand about genealogies is that they're not literal. They are, in Aramaic thought, in Hebrew thought, exact and accurate are not synonyms. In our thought, those are synonyms. If I'm accurate, I'm exact. In Hebrew genealogies, they skip generations. If someone didn't do anything, they just skip them. Uh, <laughs> so you'll notice that in this genealogy, it's 14, 14, 14. So is that really 14, 14, 14? No, they just skip people. Um, so these are the important people that show up. Uh, so you get down here to Rahab. As you remember the story of Jericho, right? Rahab the harlot is what she's called in the King James. She's really not a harlot. She's really an innkeeper. That's a whole other story. Uh, but she's probably not, she's definitely not Jewish. She helps the Jews overthrow Jericho, and she marries a Jew uh, and fathers uh, Boaz. Now you also notice that then it goes Boaz upon the Obed, his mother was Ruth. There's a whole book in the Old Testament on Ruth, right? Obed is the father of Jesse. When the, was this one generation? No, this is like 400 years. I told you they skip stuff. This is when the Jews are going into the promised land under uh, Moses has just died. Uh, so you're talking somewhere around 15, 1600 B.C. This is the grandmother of David who rules about 1,000 B.C. So they just skip 400 years here. To a Jew, that's fine because it's, it's accurate. It's not exact, but it's accurate. 
And it's true. So you have Ruth, who's not a Jew. You have Rahab, who's not a Jew. You have Tamar, who seduced Judah. <coughs> and then you have the next, hopefully the next, there we go. Then you have David, whose father saw him, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We all know that's Bathsheba. Uh, they won't even, a good Jew doesn't even mention Bathsheba. Bathsheba also was not a good girl. She was not an innocent little thing that wandered in and got pregnant by the king. There's a whole interchange of how that's occurring. And she also was not Jewish. And so then you go to the next, so basically you have 14 from Abraham to David, the single most important Jew. You have 14 from David to the exile, to Babylon. And then you have hopefully 14 more. <coughs> Maybe. There we go. And so from the exile to the Jesus is 14 generations. That's not exactly 14. I said they skip people. Uh, that's okay. If you're Aramaic, that does not bother you. If you're Greek, which is us, that bothers us a lot because we want to be exact. Uh, and so you come down, and so Matthew runs through Joseph, who is not the father. No, he doesn't say this is the father of Jesus. He said he's the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus called Messiah. So what he's doing here is showing initially Jesus is the Jew of Jews. He's exactly who he says he is. But he's thrown this little twist. There's some Gentile people in his uh, parentage, which tells you that Jesus is for the whole world. He's not just a Jewish Messiah because he throws these Gentile women in who shouldn't be in the genealogy. All right, let's talk about the next little section. This is the, most, this is the peak of the book. Uh, 17th chapter of Matthew, the transfiguration. To a Jew, this is super important. Uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, who are the inner three, uh, and led them up. I, I love the fact that he says, John, the brother of James. You're like, how many Johns are there? There's nothing else. At this point, remember, when he's writing this, John is a very important figure in the church. But he says, it's the brother of James who is James, who's already dead by this point. Led them up to a high mountain, uh, and then you had the transfiguration. And there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Very important to the Jews. Remember, because what's Jesus? Jesus is the new Moses. So, and Elijah, Elijah is probably the most important of the prophets. Uh, and then, because Peter, you know, Peter says, I'll put up three shelters, or altars or something around that. Uh, and then God comes in, and, you know, Peter, Peter's always Mr. Impulsive, right? He, he, ne he never stops and thinks. His mouth runs before his brain does every time. Uh, so I'll put up three shelters. And then, as he's still, I love this, as he's still speaking, Peter, a voice, God comes down and says, this is my son, who I love, who I love, please listen to him. So that's kind of a mic drop, if you will. Peter's going, let's, let's build the three. Uh, and then God comes in and goes, uh, this is my son. He's the guy you listen to. Uh, and then they be, be, be afraid, and the Lord's up, and everyone's gone but Jesus, and don't, says, don't tell him. Then they ask him, 
Why did the teaching of the law say Elijah must come first? In the teachings of the day, Elijah was going to come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was going to, the new Moses. So, if, if Elijah could come back, Moses could come back. Right? So they're actually, they're actually the teachers of the day actually said, Elijah, the prophet, was coming back from the dead to prepare the way. And then Moses is coming. He's going to save the people of Israel, put us back in our rightful place on top of the world, in charge of everybody. And then Jesus says, Elijah comes and we'll restore all things. That's the teaching. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. Who was Elijah in this book? John the Baptist. Because the first, after the, right after the genealogies, you have the story of John the Baptist and John's teaching and Jesus' birth and John's teaching. So John the Baptist fulfills the role that's prophesied for Elijah, saying he's going to prepare a path for the Messiah. And Jesus does not start teaching and preaching until John the Baptist is in jail. It says that in Matthew, it says that in Mark. That Jesus doesn't do anything until John is arrested by one of the Herods. So basically, what he's telling them is, in the teaching of the Jews of the day, is that Elijah is going to come, prepare the way for the new Moses. So Jesus says, Elijah's come. You guys missed him. Or you didn't miss him, because everyone knew him. Everyone knew John the Baptist. He was an important figure, well-known figure, so popular that Herod was scared of him. That's why he didn't kill him for a while. Uh, but he's Elijah, so he's Elijah's preparing the way. And so Jesus is the new, the new Moses. So this, to the Jews, is the peak of the book. Jesus, he, the, the two people who said they're going to come, God has said, no, it's not Moses, it's Jesus. Jesus is the new is the Moses who's the Messiah. So to the Jew, Jesus is now that's uh, solidifying that Jesus is the new Moses. And then Elijah, John the Baptist was Elijah. So now to the Jewish teaching thing, we're ready for the kingdom to come because Jesus has come, the new Moses come, and Elijah has come. And then one other interesting little part of the book. This, all right, so we have the transfiguration. Jesus then has a series of teachings about uh, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You need to serve other people. There are two separate things in Matthew where children come to him. In the first century, children were not, va- I would say they were loved, but they were not a high value. We teach it, we do totally separate things. Our kids are very, very important. Kids were important, but there were lots of them, but they were not more important than the parents. And they are definitely not more important than grandparents. And so there are two pieces in Matthew between the transfiguration and this passage where kids come and Jesus says, you must become like a child. You must be, have just simple faith. You must serve. And then he talks about multiple times, service. You, you know, you don't lord over people. You serve people. You serve people. You serve people. He sends the apostles, the, all the disciples out. They come back. Uh, and then uh, the whole thing of, you, you know, you must serve other people. must serve other people. And then my favorite scene, this also, uh, we just did it like last week in Mark. In Mark, 
the mother, the mother doesn't come. Matthew tells you the real story. And Mark, James, and John sit down with Jesus and go, hey, we, want to be, we don't want to be number one, we want to be number two and number three. Here's the real story in Matthew. Uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons, Zebedee, of course, the father of James and John, came to Jesus with her, with her sons and kneeled down and asked a favor of him. Let's talk a little culture. First century, women did not approach men, period. They definitely didn't approach rabbis, unless they're related. Uh, there's good data, we'll talk, we'll talk a little later, that James and John's mother was probably Mary's either sister or cousin. So James and John were actually probably some sort of cousin of Jesus's. So that, that's why when you see Jesus show up and they drop, it's not like he walks up, they've never heard of him before, and they drop their nets. They're probably related, and they, they've known about Jesus. But So the mother comes up and says, hey, uh, give me a favor. And he asks, what do you want? And then she asks the same thing that Mark, James, and John ask. But part of it, again, Mark is looking at it from a totally different viewpoint. Matthew's looking at it from a Jewish viewpoint, where the mother is an important factor in, in Judaism. And so she goes, you know, grant that they may sit on your right and your left in your kingdom. And he tells her very nicely, you don't know what you're asking. And then they jump in like always, yes, we can. We can drink the drink that you're going to drink. Uh, and then, again, he refers, you know, the rules of the Gentiles lord over and have authority. Not so. You must be, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Remember, slavery is very widespread. So he's now saying you're, you need to go from the top of society to the bottom. You can't be any lower than a slave. And Jesus is saying that he is a slave. This is very, this flips all Judea, the teaching of Judaism at the, at the first century on its head. Because it's all about if God loves me, he makes me rich, he makes me powerful. If God doesn't love me, he makes me poor, he makes me a slave. Jesus says, wait a minute. I'm, I'm functionally a slave. And to be my disciple, you must be a slave. All right. So that's kind of the book of Matthew. And, and then from here, you go into the crucifixion scene, which we've all seen a thousand times. But this is, a, I thought it was just a very interesting snapshot that they put in there. See, and so even Jesus talking to his what should be either an aunt or a second cousin, maybe, is you know, telling, saying, hey, even, even they thought at this point Jesus was going to come to rule the world. This is towards the end of his uh, teaching on earth. Because from here, you go immediately into the, the last section of teaching and then into the crucifixion. All right, that's the, that's the book of Matthew. Written to the Jews, very Jewish, uh, has lots and lots of teaching in it because that's very Jewish. And then uh, the peak of the book is the Transfiguration because that puts Jesus into the roles that the book says he is, which is the new Moses, which is the Messiah, who's going to come 
to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And also, when you read, if you read the book, you'll notice that the first person, the first people to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah are not Jews. They're always mm-hmm. Gentiles. In the book of Matthew, it's the centurion in uh, Capernaum, the one that his, uh, his Jewish slave is dying. He comes against Jesus and calls him Lord, which is Lord, Lord, not just Sir. So he recognizes him for what he is, which is the Messiah who can raise people from the dead. So this book is very Jewish, but at the same time, interspersed in it are lots of references to that Jesus comes to everyone, not just the Jews, and that he is the Messiah of all. All right, next week, Romans. Thank you, Jeff. Sure. Very good.